morning. As we continue in Exodus, we come to the beginning of the confrontation between God and Pharaoh. Now, it's going to come via Moses and Aaron confronting Pharaoh, but truly what this is, is God beginning to confront Pharaoh. And we're going to see this, this drama unfold in the coming weeks. And what we're going to see today, in beginning, is that God is going to expose an existing order, kind of a default of what Pharaoh has created, this this controlling reality. Let let me put it this way, and why it matters for us today. Uh, I think it was around 98 or so, David Foster Wallace uh, wrote a short story. Some of you may know the name well-known author, and the short story was called This is Water. And he was at pains in the short story to capture why in our day it seems that things are changing, but we're unaware of how they're changing and how they're affecting us and how they're affecting humanity and and how humanity is almost unaware of how things around them are changing and how it's affecting them. And so he gives this picture at the beginning of this story. Two fish, it's actually become very well known now, but this is where it it came from. Two fish are swimming along. Another fish swims by them, tips his little fish hat, says, water feels great today, right, boys? And they go, sure, yep, yep, sure does. He swims on. The two fish swim a little bit further, and then they stop, and they look at each other. And one of them says, what the heck is water? See, the story captures that we often swim in realities that we're almost unaware of them. We're unaware of the assumptions, the intuitions, the defaults that we are swimming in. And, and, And the issue is when we live in those, it affects our lives and drives our lives in ways we are unaware of. And today what we're going to look at is, is that There is a new, there is an existing order that is actually a very ancient order. And today it's surfacing in things like why are, why is everyone around us, why are we so exhausted and tired? I think all of us are feeling it in this modern moment. Why are we all feeling so driven and exhausted and tired? Like we, even when we get days off and we have rest, we still can't find rest. No matter how much our work week goes down, we still are exhausted. And why also is everyone fighting? Why is everyone at war with one another? Where is this coming from? Well, what I want to explore today in setting up the coming weeks is I want to look at the water that we're swimming in. And and what I want us to see is that what we're swimming in is something that, again, is ancient, something that is profoundly captured in this text. And it's that actually in our day, we are also making bricks without straw. And it's driving us to exhaustion. It's leading to fighting. So what we're going to look at today, first, why everyone's so exhausted, right? This is a big promise. I'm going to try to do this, right? Limited time. Why is everyone so exhausted? Second, why is everyone fighting? Third, 
what to do about it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we just again and again, we are amazed how your word just dissects the moment that we live in now, how your word, because it's, it's your word from you, and it's eternally true. And, and yet you capture it in these, these real moments with real people in history that live lives like our lives. And so, Lord, your, your, your word lands with practical implications. It lands with practical insight. And so, Lord, today, would you, would you speak to us through this passage? Spirit, would, would you apply it to each of our lives? Would you give us moments of insight, aha moments, uh, moments of conviction, moments of relief, moments of joy, moments of, of hope as you speak your word to us? So, Lord, would you be present, draw near to us in this moment in the way that you promised to do through the proclamation of your word? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, why is everyone so exhausted? You're like, please, let's find out. Uh, so begin in verse 1. Again, this is Exodus 5. Afterward, Moses and Aaron went and said to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Let my people go, that they may hold a feast to me in the wilderness. But Pharaoh said, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. Now, again, I think the best way to understand what's going on here on a profound level, what is going to become apparent as we move into the famous plagues where God directly opposes Pharaoh is this is the beginning of God confronting Pharaoh. Pharaoh being the one who, again, Pharaoh's not named in Exodus. We think historically we know which Pharaoh it is, but there was one Pharaoh. He died. Now there's another Pharaoh. They're all called Pharaoh. They're all called king of Egypt. They're not given a name because the name and the historical person doesn't as much matter as much as what it represents, which is in every age throughout history, there are always Pharaohs. There are always godless forces, always anti-Christ forces. There are always anti human forces, forces that seek to enslave, to captivate humanity and drive humanity away from God. And here we see a timeless principle, which is this, this idea when Pharaoh says, who are you? Notice the progression here. I don't recognize you. I don't know you. And then what follows, which is logically true, to fo should follow from it, why should I listen to you then? If, if you're, whether it's in the ancient world where you go, okay, there's a pantheon of gods, I don't recognize that one as powerful, so why would I listen to that God? Or it's in the modern day where perhaps we say, I don't even believe in a God, then why would you listen or follow? What we're going to see is that that principle, that idea that because then what it becomes is it's my will versus your will. My will, if there's a God or not a God, if I don't recognize it, then whose will wins out? And Pharaoh says, why would I listen to you? It's my will, my way or the highway. We're going to see that that's the baseline for a lot of what we live in today and part of what is leading to our exhaustion because we have to deal with that dynamic. But we'll come back to that in a moment. But then in verse 3, they repeat it. They then said, the God of the Hebrews has met with us. They kind of double down. Please let us go. This is almost like they're like, all right, last chance. We can do this the easy way or the hard way, right? Let uh, the God of the Hebrews has met us. 
please let us go three days' journey into the wilderness that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. And then they up the ante, lest he fall upon us with pestilence or with the sword. We're going to see this when we get to the curses. They're, they're both active, I, I guess you could say it like this. What they're saying here is either you can follow the Lord and, and, the, and the consequences, if you don't, are either going to be, you could say, active cursing. God is going to actively intervene as he's going to do with Pharaoh. Or also an aspect of what we'll see in the plagues is God is revealing where when we live outside, like in rebellion from him, rejecting God, then also there are natural consequences that will come with not following the Lord and not responding to him. So they're kind of alluding that's going to be coming. But then in verse 4 and 5, he says, But the king of Egypt said to them, Moses and Aaron, why do you take the people away from their work? Get back to your burdens. And Pharaoh said, Behold. Now, king of Egypt, Pharaoh, it's the same person there. Not, not really sure why. There's different phrasing ideas, but won't go into that now. But behold, the people of the land are now many, and you take them or make them rest from their burdens. In every day, in every age, across all societies and cultures, in every generation, there are forces. There is a reality of a pharaoh that has one goal, which is to drive humanity away from God. To exhaust them, to enslave them, to keep them, to burden them. That's why we read in the call to worship, right? When Jesus says, come to me, if you are weary and heavy laden, if you have burdens. Because if we are honest with ourselves, we live in a world where we carry the burdens of guilt and shame. We carry the burdens of having to create an identity and a, and a life for ourselves. We, we carry these burdens, and Satan leverages every generation, the philosophies and the thoughts of the day, in, in order to drive us mercilessly to exhaustion in the midst of that, so that we're so busy we don't even have time to think about it. But now look at how Pharaoh does it. Verse 6, the same day Pharaoh commanded the taskmasters of the people and their foremen, you shall no longer give the people straw to make bricks, as in the past. Let them go and gather straw for themselves. This is going to be very key. Here, Pharaoh, the, you've probably heard of it, even if, if, if this is like one of your first times in church, you've probably heard of this story and this famous moment when he says, you will make bricks without straw. In the ancient world, the way you made bricks was you needed straws when the primary, you know, the thing that held all the, the, the goop together, right? And so, and then you would make a brick and you would harden it. And he said, I'm going to remove that primary ingredient, but yet, even though I've removed that primary resource... I've taken away the main ingredient, the most important, to make bricks. He demands that they meet the same quota. It continues then, he said, but the number of bricks that they made in the past you shall impose on them. You shall by no means reduce it, for they are idle. Therefore they cry, let us go and offer sacrifice to our God. Let heavier work be laid on the men that they may labor at it and pay no regard to lying words. So... Bricks without straw, eliminating the resources while still demanding the same outcome. None of the resources, same outcome. This is cruel, right? 
And more so, then he says, do this so that then they don't even have it. If they ask questions, if they go, wait a minute, we don't have the resources to, to meet the quota, then he says, just give them more work. Bear down on them so that they never even have, they're so exhausted, they don't even have a chance to be aware of it, to ask questions, never a moment of rest, never a moment of silence to reflect. Just keep driving them. And then what Pharaoh does is he sends taskmasters to drive the people. So 10 through 14, they say, so the taskmasters and the foremen of the people went out and said to the people, thus says Pharaoh, I will not give you straw. Go and get your straw yourselves whenever you can find it, but your work will not be reduced in the least. So the people were scattered throughout all the land of Egypt to gather stubble for straw. And the taskmasters were urgent, saying, complete your work and daily task each day as when there was straw. And the foremen of the people of Israel, whom Pharaoh's taskmasters had set over them, were beaten and were asked, why have you not done all your task of making bricks today and yesterday as in the past. Now notice that last question, that last line there. Notice there's this demand. At this point, this becomes the default of the new order of, of living in this world that Pharaoh has created. You will not have the resources. You will not have the ingredients, but you still will be driven to produce the same outcomes. No mention of the lack of resources. This is the new reality. Now, again, when we read this, we would say, you know, rightly, this is cruel. You can imagine for the people, right, you can imagine being in this situation, the frustration, the exhaustion, I mean, even just the depression, like, how are we, how are we ever going to get out of this? And, and here's the thing, it would, be, it would be right to judge all historical instances where things like this have been done as cruel, as wrong, as evil. But it be, would be a mistake, I think, to, to assume that this kind of control, that this kind of dynamic, this kind of captivity and exploitation is merely a thing of the past. Now, obviously, while we should be thankful that such forms of, of, of external, physical slavery, captivity like this are universally at this point, acknowledge is wrong. And thankfully, where, where they are, if they, where they do exist, they're actively demolished, right? Yet there is a new kind of slavery like this, one that's equally as cruel, equally as exhausting, yet the real cruelty is almost the fact that it's hidden, that it's a part of the existing order. To the extent that we're too busy to notice. Here's what I mean. Uh, again, Pharaoh stands for you know, the anti-human, anti-God forces in every generation, and Satan is alive and well. The enemy of God, the enemy of humanity is alive and well, unfortunately. So we should expect that in every generation, including ours, every society, he will strive to enslave humanity in a similar way. And here's the thing, remember, the, the whole thing that God's calling them to at this point is he's saying, just, just free them for a few days to go out and worship me, to know me, to have a feast, to have, have joy in my presence, to know me as God, to worship me. And in every generation, that is exactly what Satan will make sure you and I, us, every human being, every man, woman, and child on this planet never gets to do. To worship God, 
Same goal, maybe a different strategy. There's going to be similar tactics. So how today? I'm going to state it. It's to get you as humanity to create a life, to create an identity. That you today, the modern form of making bricks, is to form an identity, a sense of what it means to be a human being, a sense of what it means to be you, to have meaning, to have truth, but without the resources to do it. It's a modern form of bricks without straw. Uh, let me break this down. In the, in the ancient world, they, they, they believed that God existed. L largely, universally, we've kind of gone the last 500 years, you can read like Charles Taylor, Secular Age, uh, philosophers who've been writing about this now for a while, where it, they've asked the question, how we in the, like, the last 500 years of humanity, uh, largely in the West, yes, but it's becoming a global phenomenon. How have we gone from the fact, how does he say, uh, where it was impossible to believe in God to it was possible to not believe in God to now it's impossible to believe in God. Uh, whereas now, in other words, we, we don't necessarily believe in God. And this, I think, I, and I rarely use words like this to describe something other than Scripture, but I would say uh, nearly prophetic, that's the language I usually avoid, uh, uh, words were given uh, by Friedrich Nietzsche, who in the late 19th century, at, at the kind of the dawn of this reality in the West, of the fact that we are doing away with any reality of God in our societal order, he made the famous claim, God is dead. Now, I wish I had time to read through the whole section here. We don't. But we often hear that phrase, and we're like, oh, Nietzsche, he was like, God is dead. And it was like championing it. Well, if you read the context, actually what he was saying was he has a madman run into the middle of the village where all these modern people are living and living according to the mores of the day. This is Victorian England. And they're living according to this morality and essentially the inheritance of Judeo-Christian uh, worldview, morality, ways of life, understanding human beings, and, and constructing society. And what he was saying, he runs and goes, God is dead. And here's what he says. If God is dead, do you realize this is all a farce? Do you realize that then, as he says, it's beautiful, he says, do you realize you have unchained the earth from the sun? Do you realize that everything falls apart because all of your, your default, all the plausibility structures, everything that everything is built on, rationality, even the fact that tomorrow the world won't just fall apart because no one's holding it together, all of your science, all of your morality, all of your virtues, all of your understanding of human beings as something even more than a beast instinctually running around in a field, all of those things vanish. He constructs his philosophy, trying to be consistent with what are the implications of that. But here's what he's saying. Then that means that it's incumbent upon every man, woman, and child to define reality for themselves, to create meaning, to create truth, to create some sense of right versus wrong, and to build a sense of a self that is stable in the midst of that reality. And we live in a world where that kind of assumption now actually permeates everything in the world we live in. 
And today, you wake up every day with an inner foreman, an inner taskmaster, driving you to create a life, to create an identity, a sense of self, a stable foundation to stand on. But without straw of meaning, of truth. Right versus wrong. You're, you're making bricks of meaning without the straw of truth. You're, we have obviously now, even down to the questions of if it used to be so many defaults we were born into, now we even question if I'm born into a specific body, is that my sex? Even down to that, if I'm 10 years old, I have to wrestle with that question now. We wrestle every day with what, what would be right. How do I find a spouse? How do I choose a career? Where should I live? All the, and if I do, what kind of a spouse should I be? What should a marriage be? What should a family be? What should parenting be? What, what is all this? And you have to make a choice every day on all of those things without straw of truth. We make bricks of purpose without the straw of eternity. What is this life even for? What am I aiming for? We have to make bricks of peace without the straw of salvation. What do I do with my guilt and shame? Am I just sweeping it under the rug? How do I live with this private reality when I'm in the midst of a social echo chamber where everyone's projecting their perfect selves? How in the world am I supposed to understand right versus wrong? How in the world am I supposed to evaluate how I'm doing? Make bricks of healthy relationships, family and marriage and friends without any kind of definitional shape to those things. You have to choose. What is commitment? What do I commit to? How far do I commit? When am I enabling? When, when should I stand my ground? Make bricks of value without straw of ultimate goodness and beauty. And all these, of course, now in our day are amplified. We have the internet, 24-7 options always coming at us. It's almost like a never-ending quota what are you going to choose on this? What are you going to do about this? How are you going to live up to that? How are you going to keep up with this? Uh, often, many, one of the dynamics of where this is surfacing now, sociologists have been talking about this now, especially since really the dawn of the internet really hit. They started recognizing this of going, calling it choice oppression or choice fatigue. I found it interesting, I think it was about a year ago, because everyone's like, man, we love having all endless choices and everything I get to choose for myself. And then, uh, so Netflix, right? Like the, the epitome of like endless streaming and options, right? And uh, what Netflix found, you may have heard of this, they, they actually found that they were losing subscribers because people were going, I'm so overwhelmed by the endless options, I can't choose. So that's why they created the surprise me button. Because what they found were people were like, I just want to check out, I just want to stream, but there's so many options, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by this whole reality. Just like, a, and it's a picture of all of life right now, where we're going, I'm so overwhelmed by all these options, all these choices, that at the end of the day, I just finally go, will somebody else just choose for me? It's one of the aspects of why we're exhausted. We're exhausted because we feel the inner demand and this question that comes up here in this passage, and why have you not made bricks? Why do you struggle with who you are? Why do you struggle with how to live? Why do you struggle with your purpose? Why do you struggle with all these things and constantly bombarded with choices? Should I stay in my marriage? Should I leave my marriage? Should I stay in my career? Should I leave my career? Should I stay in this city? Should I leave this city? Should I stay in this major city? Do you feel it every day, all the time, all 
all around you? How do I project myself onto the world so I'm approved? It's like the question or the demand here, how, at the end of the day, could you not make bricks? How could you not keep up with the quota? Why? Because we don't have the resources to do it. We're making bricks without straw. If there's no God, then whose truth? No truth, then whose value and meaning for things? No meaning, inherent value, then whose morality, right and wrong? How do I do this life? How do I do it well? And the moment we ask those questions, though, everything is speeding up and going so fast that you hear this voice, no, 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 just like here. You don't get the resources, but don't question it. Don't take a moment of silence to figure this out. Just keep getting back to work at making bricks and trying to make a marriage and a life and, and whatever you're facing. No wonder we're exhausted in the modern day. We are making bricks without straw. Now, here's the thing. I know I just opened up a lot of can of worms uh, with these things, a lot of different subtopics. It has to do with, I mean, I think there are things now with economics, things with technology. There are things with philosophical approaches to life and all kinds of things. Uh, anyways, we'll go on and on. Uh, don't have time here. This is, I'm going to do a pitch here. These are some of the things we're going to get into in the Captive No More workshops. I think that in this order, the question is, how do we do discipleship in our day? My heart is breaking. One, because I realized, guys, I had a sabbatical this summer, and I remember I came out of the sabbatical where I came out, and I was like, why do I feel just as tired? And I had to really wrestle with that. Many of you are going, like, why am I constantly, matter how much rest, or I get away, or I change cities, or I change jobs, why am I so tired? This. And we're going to be exploring a lot of that. We're not going to have any silver bullets for it, but we're going to have, I think, really good discussion about how do we begin to navigate this today in the church. Uh, next point, why is everyone fighting? Uh, what, again, what I'm describing here is this order. These are the waters that we're swimming in. And, and what happens is, in the midst of when you're swimming in it, is we tend to see, when we come up against these realities as we're trying to make a life in the modern world, we, we come up against this... This, uh, we come up against realities and constraints where all of a sudden we're like, this isn't working. And we're exhausted and going, why isn't this working? Why can't, and here's the thing, what it is for us is we're really going, why can't I make it work? And what happens is we begin to almost look around and blame. Find fault. Now what's interesting here is this is exactly what happens after this. Start in verse 15. It says, then the foreman of the people of Israel came and cried to Pharaoh, why do you treat your servants like this? No straw is given for your servants, yet they say to us, make bricks, and behold, your servants are beaten. But the fault is your own people. Now I want you to notice something here as I go through this. They are going to go to Pharaoh. They are going to go to Moses. They are going to go. Mo Pharaoh's going to speak back to them here. They never actually get to the root of the problem. They never actually blame Pharaoh. The fault is the foreman. The next one, then 17, but he said, you are idle. This is Pharaoh. You are idle. You are idle. That is why you say, let us go and sacrifice to the Lord. Go now and work. No straw will be given to you, but you must still deliver the same number of bricks. And the foreman of the people of Israel saw that they were in trouble when they said, you shall by no means reduce your number of bricks, your daily task each week or each day. They met Moses and Aaron. This is the third, who were waiting for them as they came out from Pharaoh. And they said to them, the Lord look on you and judge because you have made us stink in the sight of Pharaoh and his servants and have put a sword in their hand to kill us. 
What's interesting is they blame three different groups of people. They find fault. There's kind of a blame game going on here. Who's, they're trying to find liberation. They're going, who's, who's making the problem here? Where's the problem here? And notice they go everywhere but to Pharaoh, and they blame three different types of groups. And here's the thing. In our day, what happens when we are raised in this society where we're, we're told you construct meaning, you construct an identity, you do it with the endless choices on option, and there's no God or any standards by which that has to be measured, you choose. And ultimately what we do in our culture largely is the pursuit of trying to find pleasure and trying to find the best, most pleasing life. And what happens as we pursue that is that works for a time until we come up against reality and the constraints of the world we live in. And here's the key. That moment normally, almost always, will revolve around a relationship with a person. I've, I've used this illustration before. Uh, what did the fish say when it ran into the water? Some of you have heard it, but I found this is incredibly helpful uh, to, to kind of describe what's going on in our day. What did the fish say when it ran into the water? It's my favorite dad joke. Uh, and the answer to it is, what did it say? Damn, right? I'm keeping up with this fish analogy, right? So he's like, wow, he said heck, and now I said damn in church. Um, but why is it, why do we laugh? You can laugh. Uh, <laughs> why do we laugh? Because there's two possible meanings. The fish runs into a wall, it hits a dam. And the fish can say, that's a dam. I can't go any farther. So I'm going to turn around and I'm going to live my life in the rest of the sea. Be content. Or what the fish does is it runs up against the wall and it yells at the heavens, darn you, right, uh, for this barrier. It, it's, it's a helpful picture for what happens in our day is that when we think we can live however we want, we ultimately will come up against creational realities. We live however we want, we will eventually come up against health issues. If we live however we want, we'll eventually come up and, and run out on our spouse. We're going to run up on marriage issues. If we cheat and try to get around in our field or in our, when we're studying, we might be able to get the degree or you might get caught or you might come up against it when the fact is you didn't learn what you need to learn to be able to thrive in your career. On and on, we think we can do, live as we want, but we will eventually come up against realities, and those realities normally are people. Three that are normally there are foremen. I'm going to hit these quick just for time. Foremen, which are people in your life who are actually going to hold you accountable to the realities of, essentially, you do have to make bricks in life. You do have to eventually make a life. And, and so, what, like right now, school teachers... You may feel this when little Johnny is being told that little Johnny can do as he pleases and little Johnny can, is always going to nail it on every test. But when little Johnny doesn't study and you have to write F on his paper and you give it back and then little Johnny says, you're cruel. Your reality, Johnny's hitting it. Doctors, I'm hearing this again and again when they say somebody comes in and it's, hey, you're on, I'm going to give an example, you're on your third valve replacement. I can't do any more, but if I've, we've been here again and again, you can't just smoke as much as you want, eat as much fast food as you want, right? Like all the, all the life, the factors that come into this, and I can't give you another one. And then all of a sudden they find out from HR they've gotten in trouble for shaming the patient. What's happening there is people are coming up against that dam. And instead of going, that's a dam, I have to change, they wail on that dam, and that dam 
is usually a person who is in a role who has to say, that's a dam. That's the first group we're fighting with. The second one is we fight with ourselves. This is the harshest. Pharaoh says to them, you are idle, you are idle, make the bricks. It's your fault. I think in our day, what's happened is that the Pharaoh is internalized rather than externalized like here, and we exploit ourselves. And we feel the compulsion in our day that we have to endlessly make the bricks if we want to keep up. This is a big thing we're going to talk about in the workshops. In her book, Self Made, which I recommend anyone would read, Tara Isabella Burton recently, she charts the history of this idea of this new thing where we make ourselves. She says, I believe we have not so much done away with the belief in the divine as we have relocated it. We have turned our backs on the idea of a creator God out there and instead placed God within us. By the way, she's not a Christian, so this is really insightful. More specifically, within the numinous forces of our own desires, our obsession with self-creation is also an obsession with the idea that we have the power that we once believed God did, to remake ourselves in our realities, not in the image of God, but in our own desires. But we have inherited too, and this is key. This idea, uh, this idea is dark underbelly, sorry. I voice recorded this quote, um, <laughs> dark underbelly. If we do not manage to determine our own destiny, this is key, it means that we have failed in one of the most fundamental ways possible. We have failed at what it means to be human in the first place. One of the reasons why there is so much, I believe, I think, yes, the depression and things in our day, thankfully now when that is there, we can talk about it, but the reason why it's becoming so ubiquitous is because of the sense that we feel we must endlessly create ourselves, and if we're told you can do whatever you want to be, then that means the fault is yours if you don't create the life that you desire. And we also live in an echo chamber of comparison with all kinds of people who seem to be projecting that they're nailing it. And so every day you live with this voice in your head that says, the reason why you didn't meet the quota, the reason why you didn't meet the standard is you're idle. You're idle. You're just, you're a failure. There's something wrong with you when the fact is you're not supposed to be making bricks without straw. And so we don't just fight with others outside, we fight with ourselves. We almost beat ourselves. There's almost this labor camp inside every one of us. The last one are the messengers, those who represent the commitments of God. They turn on Moses and Aaron. We went over this at the, actually at the beginning of the uh, worship night on Friday night where Chris opened with referring to Exodus 16.8 where the people are grumbling in the wilderness and they come to God or they come to Moses and they're grumbling at him, yelling at him, mad at him. He says, listen, your quarrel is not with me, it's with the Lord. He's saying, ultimately, here you're mad at God. I'm just standing in the way, I'm the messenger. And so what happens is if you're in the place of a relationship with somebody who either one will hold up a mirror of God's word, who, who refuses to affirm unhealthy or damaging decisions, someone who will, will hold to the commitments, who, who is a commitment. Like if you're married to someone and they represent a commitment, that commitment impinges upon your ability to endlessly self-express. And so what happens is we turn on those who represent in some way the commitments God calls us to in life. 
they're messengers in that way. This is in part why everyone is fighting. The underneath reason. Now, yes, all of those groups, any of these, they could be cruel, they could be a problem. Yes, of course. But certainly something is being ratcheted up in our day, and I think we all feel it. Could it be that we are trying to make bricks without straw and we are trying to figure out whose fault it is, why this is happening? And the fact is we live in an order that is pushing us and we're just dealing with the surface level symptoms. Lastly, what do we do about it then? Look at verses 22 and 23. When Moses turned to the Lord and said, Oh Lord, why have then he turned to the Lord and said, Oh why, Lord, why have you done evil to this people? Why did you ever send me? For since I came to Pharaoh to speak your name, he has done, he, since I've come to speak in your name, he has done evil to this people, and you have not delivered your people at all. You know what? When I read this at first, I was like, man, I want to speak to God that way. Right? <laughs> uh, but here's the thing I also found. This is actually really refreshing. It's honest because Moses is like, there are no silver bullets here. But what I think is here, because God's going to respond to him in chapter 6, but what's here, there's a silver-plated bullet, you could say, which is, here's the key, Moses turns to the Lord. One simple thing here, just the, the little bit, Moses is overwhelmed by this, just like we might be overwhelmed by these realities, but what Moses does is he doesn't, like everyone else, turn on everyone else, turn around from the Lord and blame everything in front of him. What he does is in this moment, he is the only one who turns to the Lord, and the Lord is going to give him hope. The Lord is going to give him truth that he can build his life on. But here's the thing, it's instructive for us. We will not find freedom. We will ultimately, by changing, just by changing, I mean, we're gonna have to do this sometimes, but just changing jobs, just changing cities, jumping churches, jumping marriages, they will just, we will just bring the captivity with us. If this is in us, we will bring it with us. We won't find freedom in beating ourselves up for not measuring up to the standards of the day. Even if you become a jet setter, right? All those guys that are like on there now with like their private jets. I'm like, how do people have all this money? But they're flying around. You're, you can be a jet setter and accomplish that, and you will still feel shackled. We won't find freedom in railing against the faults and shortcomings of our family, our culture, our church. What will happen is we will just find, <laughs> we'll just find a future ex-husband or wife. We'll just find our future ex-church, our future ex-neighborhood, our future ex-friends. Why? Because at that point, we're merely beating our breasts in the air. We'll spend our lives exhausted trying to run from a world that we cannot escape. And instead, like Moses, the wise response is to run to the one who frees how? What's interesting here is Moses actually does the one thing that actually in some ways doesn't really make sense, right? Moses is looking at all the practical things. He goes to God when it seems like all the practical things around them are the way to get this done. Moses, in some ways, was kind of the most foolish person in this passage. Uh, there's a 
a philosopher named Byung-Chul Han. Recently translated in English, he's Korean-born German philosopher. And he writes on some of these things that are going on in society. And he says this. He says, the one thing I can think of of how you fight back against this is to play the idiot. You're like, wow, now you said heck, damn, and idiot in the sermon, right? Um, but listen to this. Today, it seems the type of the outsider, the idiot, the fool, has all but vanished from society. Thoroughgoing digital networking and communication have massively amplified the compulsion to conform. So in other words, to conform to the dynamics I've been talking about. The idiot is a modern-day heretic. The person says, I'm not going to buy into the system. I'm not just going to swim in these waters and go with the current. Today, in light of increasingly coercive conformism, it is more urgent than ever to heighten heretical consciousness. I love that. Now, actually, this is very Christian wisdom, which is play the fool. Like, be a heretic in our day. This is exactly what Paul says. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we are in disrespect. In other words, Paul's he's in Corinth where everything is pagan. Everything, the default order of the day, is pushing against any kind of faithfulness to God. And Paul says, in the midst of this, the one thing I know is I will be a fool. I'm, I'm going to be a heretic when I speak. I'm going to be the person who doesn't just conform and go with the flow and just get burnt out and exhausted and then put a smile on my face for everyone around me and just tell the lie in order to keep up the charade. What he says is play the fool and stand your ground that in fact, because you are one with Christ, if you have that, then in fact, you don't have to slave away making bricks to make an identity, that you have an identity that he's already given you, that you are righteous, that you are his, that you're a child of the king of heaven, and only that can anchor you down to the bedrock in the midst of the choppy cross currents of our day. If, a living, if living according to God's word makes you a fool, then be a fool who is sane. If not keeping up with every trend and every fad and every hashtag makes you a fool according to the world, then at least you have peace and rest. If refusing to go along with a destructive lifestyle or to affirm others makes you a fool, then at least you have your integrity. Philosopher Frederick Schiller once said, live with your century, but do not be its creature. In our day more than ever, being a fool in Christ and living according to who he is and fighting to find your identity in him, it's the only way not to be a creature of our generation. How? We turn to him. Knowing we are not meant to make bricks without straw and identity without truth, and we resist that where we can as much as possible. Again, in the workshops, we'll try to get practical as much as we can on that. It's going to be experimental because no one's talking about this stuff. But it's key to walking with him, to turning to him and saying, Lord, would you help me break free? And we do it by turning to him and finding it in the God who liberates because here's the thing, <laughs> God is not dead. 
God is not dead. He is alive. He is well. And he's free. And if you and I, we will turn to him, even in this day, we will be alive and well and free as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this passage. And Lord, just how it, it cuts through to so many things in our day. Lord, where this, this shakes us and, and wakes us up, where, where, where we feel this, where we feel this coming at us, where we feel this, we feel us coming at others and, and that bl whole blame game that goes on, Lord, where we just find ourselves exhausted. Jesus, those words that you give us, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus, give us the wisdom to come to you, Spirit, right now for each of us. Will you give us whatever that step is, whatever that thing is, would you just impress it upon our minds now, whether it's, it's offering forgiveness to someone, seeking forgiveness from someone. Whether it's taking a step of commitment in something, whatever it might be, Lord, would, would you reveal it to us so that, Lord, we would not just be cast around these waters. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.